Welcome to Euros Harley's Finding the Front, where we get to know the people who front some of Western Australia's leading companies, providing you with real insights into the way they think and approach things, both in business and in life. So get the volume adjusted in your car or your headphones sorted and settle in for a great story. Here's your host, Tim Banfield. Welcome everyone to a brand new episode of Euros Hartley's Finding the Front. Euros Hartley's is a proudly Western Australian leading financial services business. Recently, we held our fifth annual Commissions for a Cause Day, where 100% of all brokerage generated on the day is donated equally to four worthy Western Australian charities. It was a wonderful day, throwing our support behind the Perth Children's Hospital Foundation, the Women and Infants Research Foundation, the WA Cricket Foundation and Lifeline WA. The final amount raised was an enormous $300,000 or $75,000 for each of our participating charities. A huge well done to all involved. What an effort. Remember that if you would like to learn more about Euros Hartleys and the valued financial services we provide, please check out our website at www.euroshartleys.com. Now on to the main event. We really do have a very special opportunity in this episode to spend some time with a veteran of some 50 years of the mining industry. Someone who originated from the US and travelled out to WA, who has dedicated himself to geology, mineral processing and mining in the US, Canada and Australia. And someone who backed himself in from the very start. Our guest today is none other than Mr Charlie Bass. Charlie was the co-founder of Eagle Mining in 1992, which was then subject to a hostile takeover in 1997. He also co-founded Aquila Resources in 2000, transitioning it from a gold explorer to iron ore and coal before it too was subject to a hostile $1.4 billion takeover in 2014. These days, Charlie is still heavily involved in mining, being the Managing Director of Eagle Mountain Mining, stock code EM2. He is also very active in philanthropy and, with his own hard-earned money, is the founder and chairman of the Centre for Entrepreneurial Research and Innovation, otherwise known as SERI, a charitable organisation working with postgraduate researchers in fostering a startup culture to drive the future economy of WA. This story delivers some serious insights and understanding into life of a mining entrepreneur of historic big WA mining deals and initiatives to help drive the future of Western Australia. So without further ado, it is a real privilege and gives me an enormous pleasure to introduce to Euros Hartley's Finding the Front, the Managing Director of Eagle Mountain Mining and all-round great guy, Mr. Charlie Bass. Charlie, great to have you in the studio. Oh. Welcome welcome to Euros Hartley's Finding the Front. Thanks, Tim. This is going to be fun. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Uh, look, we really appreciate your time. It's taken a couple of times to work out when it suits to catch up, but, but we're just so appreciative of him. So thank you very much. You're welcome. So, Charlie, as you're aware, one of the key points with Finding the Front is we get to learn about you and the things that influenced you in growing your career 
into what it became and the person you've become. And it's just a fascinating story and we're, we're so genuinely excited about the opportunity to have a chat. So when I've been doing my homework, I went back and I learned that you were actually born in Pennsylvania. Now, we can tell a little bit by the accent, but Pennsylvania through to Florida. Well, you might have to interpret for me because <laughs> I still haven't lost the accent, have I? <laughs> Yeah, I was born in Reading, Pennsylvania, which is kind of near the Amish country. Right. And a lot of my early expressions, even though I went to Florida when I was maybe two years old, were Pennsylvania Dutch expressions like, make off with the light. <laughs> so, Turn the light off. Or, right. <laughs> <laughs> or make the door shut. <laughs> it's the way they talk. Yeah. And tell me about growing up in Florida. Where, whereabouts did you live? So I was in North Miami, and when we lived there, the Miami Beach was a few of the main old hotels. And where we lived, we drove across the, the Everglades on a little stone causeway, and you could still see alligators off the side of the causeway. Wow. So it was a very different place. And the beaches we went to, there were no fancy hotels or anything, just... Normal beaches. A stark contrast to where Miami is now. Oh, yeah. And even Perth. Yes. I mean, it wasn't, the ocean is totally different down there. It's not a big, well, it's a big ocean. It's the Atlantic Ocean, but it doesn't have the waves and the, it's not cold no. like the water is here in Perth. Did you live on the beach? We lived very close, maybe a 10, 15 minute drive yes. to the beach. And yes. We'd go at least once a week, maybe sometimes two or three days a week, depending upon how my father felt. He loved the beach. My mom hated the sand, but she still went. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me a little bit about your family. So you was, there was you and you had brother and sister. And a brother and sister following me, yeah. Yeah. And are they younger or older? They're, they're younger than me. They're about 13 months apart. Right. And what did your dad do? My dad, well, he and his brothers, there were four brothers and a sister, and obviously they, they were of the age that they had just gotten out of, from the Second World War and getting married and such. And, of course, they didn't have the opportunity to go to university. They hadn't had any. They were young, so they had no real formal education. So they all went, and very few of them, actually none of them, went to work for other people. They wanted to be, they all wanted to be independent, the four brothers. And my dad and two others work together and my mom said no I like my sister-in-laws I want to keep them so you guys got to split up and do your own thing you can't work together right and she was very wise in doing that yeah but it was always in furnishings of some description that my father was involved in either selling furniture or making furniture or reupholstery something in that line yes and did he run a number of small businesses he did he got bored very easily right so he said oh this is no good. I want to go do this and off he'd go and my mother was pretty tolerant <laughs> of him chopping and changing much to the chagrin of her father who thought my dad should just sit down work for somebody else take home a real decent paycheck and keep her in the manner in which she's accustomed but he uh, didn't listen no and she was happy to follow him yeah so he'd jump around here and there we'd move here and there and eventually i don't know we went up to visit my mother's brother who was living in toronto at the time and I thought we were just going up for a summer break. Next thing I know, we've moved there. My dad went back, sold the house, sold all our gear, and we're living in Canada. And all I learned in school was that 
you know, you go to Canada and Eskimos live in igloos. I thought, this is going to be cool. <laughs> <laughs> no such thing as igloos in Toronto. So your primary schooling was in Florida? In Florida, and then middle years, high school in Toronto. In Toronto, okay. And tell me a little bit about school. How did you find it? Oh, I did enough to get by, but yeah. I never was all that studious. And certainly by the time I was able to drive a car at 15 and a half, 16, I delivered pizzas. What, oh, to feed my habit, I went to work during high school. My habit was skiing. I learned about skiing in Toronto. And there were some hills nearby that had night skiing. So I'd go night skiing. I'd ski on the weekend. And, of course, I went delivering pizzas to make that. And so we, at school, skiing became a very important part of your life. Absolutely. Yeah. And the academic side, was it a strong point, would you say? Not really. I suppose I knew that I would be going to university. But what I wanted to do, I had no idea yeah. when I was growing up. Although, as it evolved, I knew I wanted to be doing something out of doors. I yes. loved the out of doors, camping and all that kind of stuff. And not knowing why, but I'd pick up a rock here and there. And, Whoa, that's pretty. But not knowing anything about them. No, but it was part of that outdoors lifestyle that yeah. you're growing to love. Yeah. The opportunities that being in Canada gave you on the outdoors, was there anything else that you learnt being at school in Canada that yeah, it's a very outdoors-driven place. Camping, skiing, as you mentioned, rivers. What else did you take out of it in terms of an upbringing? Honestly, not a lot of other things. So, and you're kind of snowbound. Most people are snowbound that aren't skiing or doing anything in the wintertime. They're four or five months kind of closed up indoors in the gray. Yes. And the other thing, I suppose there may be two months of the year in spring. That's just gray and overcast and miserable. And I think by the time it came to say, okay, end of high school, I thought, I got to get out of Toronto. I can't stand this gray, drizzly weather. I don't know how people can live in London yes. <laughs> yeah. or anywhere in the UK. Yeah, That's the weather they get. We're so spoiled here. So school finished and you didn't really have an idea on what you wanted to do, but you ended up doing a tertiary degree or you went on to university. Tell us a little bit about how that unfolded because I know that it had a lot to do with the outdoors. <laughs> <laughs> it, did, it, it certainly did. So in Ontario, if you're just going to get a high school certificate, you finish at the end of year 12. If you're going to go on to university, you do a year 13. So I'd applied to some U.S. universities. My mom said, you're going to go to university. I wanted to be a ski bum. And I looked at in this book of universities in North America, and I found this one, Michigan Technological University, which happened to be a good mining and geology school, and they had their own ski hill and 350 inches of snow a year. I said, <laughs> I'm going to go there. Big May. Not really knowing that uh, mining, metal, or whatever. And so I took geology. But when I was there, one of the requirements at that point in time, they said, you got to do two years of a foreign language. I thought, well, what does that get me as part of my geology? I said, I've just done five years of French in Canada. You want me to do more French or take another language? I said, I'd much rather do mineral processing, which is more aligned to geology and mining, do two years of that. I said, oh, never thought of that. And he said, oh, okay, go ahead and do it. 
And I did so well at it that they never required a language of any geologist thereafter. That you changed the course structure of the university. Well, I guess I continually challenged the status quo. Yes. So I didn't finish year 13. I got accepted at the end of year 12. So I said, well, did they accept me on the basis of going to year 13 in Canada or not? I didn't even, I just went and showed up. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And they took me. And you went on to do mineral processing through no other choice than you didn't want to do a language and it aligned with that mining and geology. Pretty, pretty much, yeah. And you really embraced the idea of mineral processing at the time. I did because I thought, well, geology, that's great. That's the hunt. That's seeing what's in the ground. The mining is just digging it out. But the mineral processing is getting the valuable stuff out. If you can't get the valuable stuff out of the rock, well, what's it all mean? And that's how it started. So this pathway into where you ended up really started with a love of skiing, saw that they had a slope on the University of Michigan, (laughs) thought, well, this course is available to do while I ski. And it started because you didn't need to do a language. You started with mineral processing to align yourself there. And off we went. If I didn't ask, uh, who knows what I'd be doing today. I would not be here, most likely. It's a sliding door moment. So with university, one of the things I took out of my research is that you embraced it, but there was an element of computer programming within this degree. Well, yes, I had to do Fortran, but I hated it. And I, it conflicted with another course I had, which was ice hockey. <laughs> <laughs> what would you do? You, Fortran and the old computer cards, right? The punch cards, or go and play ice hockey. I mean, that's a no brainer. <laughs> Just with this, what was the requirement from the computer programming side of it within the course that you failed to attend? Well, they just wanted engineers, I guess, or whatever science people learn how to program a computer. But I was pretty dumb that way because. To me, using a, it's like using a typewriter to type the punch cards, right? And when I was using a typewriter, I thought, well, there's no difference between an O and a zero or an L and a one. But certainly for the computer, there definitely is. There's a big difference. A yeah. big difference. Although they look the same to me, the computer does not compute. <laughs> no, nah, this is not good. Not for me. So off back to ice hockey. The reason I bring that up is it does come back in your life in an amazing way, this relationship with computers. And I just wanted to note for the listener that Charlie's first introduction into computing was not necessarily embraced and ice hockey took precedent. If we move on, Charlie, you went out of from the university and you looked at an opportunity to do a job. And at that point... Jobs were difficult to come by, correct? They were. The year before I graduated, every recruitment agency for mining was all over the school. Everybody got a job. The year I graduated, nobody showed up. The industry was in depression. So, like all good Jews, what do you do? You're going to be a bartender (laughs) until you find a job. (laughs) And eventually, I did land a job in northern Quebec in Shibugamo at an underground copper gold mine. And how long were you doing bartending for? 
Oh, maybe nine, six, nine months. Yeah, right. Like okay. And it took that time yeah. to try and locate a job in geology or mining. It, it did. So we're talking there about 1972. More like 73, 74. S- 73, 74. Yeah. yeah. And how did you find that first job? It was very different. It was at the end of the road in Quebec. Now there's way more up there. It was rather interesting. I'd never experienced an underground, well, early in my career, an underground mine before. But uh, my main job was logging core outside a tent. And normally, probably for five, four or five months of the year, the average daytime temperature is about 40, it's equivalent, I think, about 40 below zero. Goodness. So even the acid that I had to put on the core to see if there's carbonates or whatever, the acid was freezing. So I went to management and I said, well, I can't do this. This is crazy. Yeah. I'm leaving. And they said, well, hold on. We have a job for an assistant plant metallurgist. And plant. Do you know anything about mineral processing? I said, well, I did two and a bit years of it in university. I said, okay, job's yours. And within six months, the plant metallurgist was training me, left. And they said, okay, now you're plant metallurgist in this copper gold mill. And then before I knew it, the copper price had gone from its flat 60 cents a pound to 90 cents a pound. The U.S. took the cap on gold at $35 an ounce. They removed that. Gold's going up to $90 an ounce. And management saying, whoa, we need to double the plant capacity. And they brought in all these consultants and things. And I'm working with the superintendent and everybody else and trying to plan, how are we going to do this? And then somebody said, oh, here's an application to do a master's degree to get a scholarship, not through this company, but through the Canadian Mineral Industry Education Foundation. Right. Big mouthful. Okay, I'll fill it out and send it in. But it wasn't to do the same geology. It was to do mineral processing or mining. And I got the scholarship, the one scholarship, which paid me for two years the same amount that I was making working at the mine. But they said, you got to go to McGill which was in Montreal. And I said, oh, I don't know about McGill. I think they're better profs that I want to do at Queen's University, which is halfway between Toronto and Montreal, which, by the way, is where I met my wife. So in this point, you're working as the lead metallurgist in the company. You see an opportunity to do an MBA or, or a master's. And how many people would have applied for this master's? I have no idea. But you landed no- it. I'd like, I, I mean, it wasn't by the, it wasn't by the grades that I got in my undergrad. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, you clearly were good at something because that part of the story is really important because it took you to Queens, which is where you met your wife, Sylvia. Oh, that's correct. And I went there to do mineral processing, but they said, well, to get the mineral processing degree, you have to do the equivalent of an undergrad mining degree. So now I've got geology under my belt. Yes. Mining to a undergrad level and mineral processing to a high level. But again, I didn't have to use computers. And that was where we're through to around what 1976. Yes. When I finished that when I got a job with Amax, yes. And so you finished that masters and you were recruited to the head office of American Metals Climax known as Amax to do ore body mining and mine planning. 
Is that right? Well, I was recruited into a unique group within the corporate office, and they were trying to use computers. In those days, there were only mainframe computers for cost control, construction management, and or body modeling and mine planning. And, well, they recruited me because of my varied background, not because I knew anything about computers. And they said, here's this computer and kind of how to use it and figure it out for yourself. And it was a tool. It was a very good tool in those days. Yes. and that, But that's, they used your combination of skill set, including your metallurgy at the end, and plus the MBA, to take this role on an AMAX. That's correct. But from what I could see in this role, which did involve computers, as you highlighted, you developed the first ever mine plan for molybdenum. Molybdenum. That's correct. The ore body, we did the modeling, and with a friend of mine, associate there, we did the mine plan on it. First primary molybdenum mine that was done with computers. Which is a far cry from the guy who missed the computer classes to go and play ice hockey. (laughs) 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 I mean, you must have been pinching yourself going, oh my God, I can't believe I'm winging this. Very different. But during this phase... I'll take a side step, kind of has to do with part of Seri, was things were being developed out in the world. So when I was dealing with the computers to look at graphics, it was still the dot matrix printers. Right. So you can't really plot much out. We program pen plotters to draw like contours and things like that. And that's about, about it. But these machines were coming out that you could program to do graphics on it, not like today. And there were levers and dials and this and that and the other thing. So I was sent to go look at a couple of different companies. And I went to Salt Lake City, and there was this company that maybe was five, six years in play called Evans & Sutherland. After two of the professors, they were world-class computer graphics profs in the 60s and 70s. And they had no way think about it, write the code, look at numbers coming out. But they had no way of visualizing what it is they were doing. So they went and they built this equipment. Right. So I said, I want to try this equipment out. If it works, we'll do it. And figured out how to program it. And it was brilliant. But it winds up that the Seven Sutherland, which still exists today, by the way. Yes. Mostly in high tech for military applications. Between the students between the profs Evans and Sutherland and those who worked in that business came the fellow who created Silicon Graphics and the first web browser, Netscape. Goodness me. The fellow who co-founded Pixar, the fellow who co-founded Adobe, a fellow who co-founded Oracle, and a fellow who wound up running the biggest government research lab in the U.S. out of these two professors. And that's out of Evans and Sutherland. Evans and Sutherland, yeah. Two professors who didn't go say, do this, but whatever they were doing was magic that got these guys going. Yes. Now, when we get to Sari, maybe there's a little bit come, that's part of my Well, it shaped you in terms of your thoughts and you could see the entrepreneurialism and the smarts and being applied, in this case, to computer graphics. Yeah. And so you learnt from them. Did you take that back to AMAX? Well, I did, but very shortly after thinking I was going to be there and 
still in a technical role, AMAX, I think that one of their geos had discovered the Mount Whaleback ore body at Newman. So one of the first iron ore mines to be started out here. So AMAX was maybe a 30, 35% joint venture, along with the precursor to BHP and Mitsui and CSR. Anyway. And that's in the Mount Whaleback deposit. Yeah, yeah. So they seconded me out, they thought, for six months to Perth and Newman. But that job wound up being two years. Just pause there, Charlie. So if I can just go a bit to the left. You met Sylvia in around 1976. Well, when you joined AMAX, were you just coming out of your master's and you guys got married? You've been married now for 47 years, I understand. That's correct. (laughs) (laughs) That's just fantastic. And you've got two boys. Two boys. So you've gone home one day from AMAX headquarters and said, Sylvia, I've been offered an opportunity to go to the most remote location in the world, in essence. (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) Hey, look, the guys that I worked with, they were getting sent to the Yukon and Northwest Territory, Africa, all these weird places. Right. And I thought, why aren't I going anywhere? Yeah. So when they said, you want to go to Perth? I thought, oh, yeah, I think so. Way better than the frozen north again. You had an adventurous spirit in many ways in this regard because the opportunity to go to Western Australia was given to you and you grabbed it with both hands. Absolutely. And at this point, did you know anything about Western Australia? I knew nothing about, well, kangaroos and whatever. <laughs> nothing. <laughs> I didn't know a soul. I didn't know a soul in Australia or from Australia. And how did Sylvia feel at this point? She thought it would be fun. She was good to do the traveling. She'd been working. She was happy to come because we lived in this little small town where the headquarters of AMAX was. And I could walk to work in 15 minutes. She had an hour, hour and a half commute into southern South Manhattan. Right. And she did a master's degree in art conservation, specializing in paper. Well, she worked for some people who did this work. And by the time she paid for her the trains and buses and all that kind of stuff and her taxes it was i was subsidizing her right so So she was very happy to leave that but not wanting to leave her profession so we're talking about 1978 here when you arrived in perth on on what was proposed to be a six-month secondment and here we are talking now but there was a two-year stint with amax in that role your role was really to upskill the staff on that project, it, technically. It, well, there were two sides to it. One was to upskill the staff and try and help more with their modeling and such. It wound up that I understood that project so well that in the interim between finishing that job after two years and setting up my own business here, I went back to the U.S. to pack up all our gear and have it sent out. And in that time frame, they asked me to have a look at what was going on with the mining and the mine planning. And because it was a joint venture, they didn't want to put the money into stripping waste. And they kept mining ore and ore and ore. And they got themselves what's called waste-bound. You can't get any more ore out unless you spend a massive amount of money sitting there moving this waste. 
So AMAX, CSR had recognized this. They left. AMAX left. Mitsui might have stayed in it. And VHP, well, what was the precursor? Hey, thank you very much. We now own the whole lot. Put the money in. It's turned BHP into what they are today. And that's how it started. Yeah. What an amazing period of time. And so with that, when AMAX withdrew, you then went, right, well, I've clearly got a skill set here that's applicable to Western Australia. And you took that skill set, which was technical skills in essence, coming back to what you were doing, upskilling the staff. And what was the next stage? You saw an opportunity. Well, I didn't know whether I saw an opportunity or not, but my wife and I knew that we were meant to be here. Within three months of arriving in Perth, we knew it would be our home forever. I don't know what it was or why it was. The work I had at Mount Newman, it was not fun at all. I didn't enjoy it. But the other people, the friends we met in the place, was just amazing. Just amazing. And we traveled around a lot. We went out to Kalgoorlie. In fact, another little side issue that leads to Seri is we went out to Cal. And why are these guys at like 9 o'clock in the morning sitting on the curb? Their ass on the curb and their feet in the gutter. And they're all, Jesus, they're really, the pubs don't open for another few hours. And they must have clocked. What's going on? Yes. I didn't realize that the gold and nickel mines had all closed down. But the other interesting thing is I'm sitting there. We're sitting, I remember, having lunch and looking down. I thought, head frame, head frame, head frame, head frame. And all they were owned by all little individual companies. And I thought, this is one great big, this is all connected. How come nobody's put it together? And it was like Alan Bond read my mind. Is that right? Now there's a super pit there, right? <laughs> but you saw that when Did, you arrived. Oh, I, I couldn't figure out why nobody had strung all these things together. <laughs> so that we we're talking about there, 1980. That's probably a 80, yeah. Yeah. 79, 80. This entrepreneurial mindset clearly kicked off around now in terms of your thoughts on where your next stage was going to be. And you, you did go out and start a software, a mining software company called Metec. That's correct. Yes, for mine evaluation technology. And that was and, in the early 80s. And that was 81. I hung my shingle out. And because I didn't go to university here, I didn't work with a whole lot of people. I didn't know. I didn't have a network built. Yes. But thankfully, my wife had a nice job at the art gallery restoring works of art, so she could keep me in the manner in which I'm accustomed <laughs> and let me build my business. Tell us a little bit about Metech. How did that go? Well, first year, I think I had a taxable income of about $30 <laughs> and then did some work. Amazingly, it was back into iron ore with Robe River, and I worked a lot. I probably had a 12, 15-year association with Robe River, helping them with a lot of their different ore bodies and mining, and then back to Mount Newman and others, and then into the early gold stage and just lots of different projects. And it was all around that software side of it. It was consulting. I, mean, I was hoping I could sell software, but again, the technology, it was still a lot of mainframes then. Yes. PCs hadn't come out. 
It was expensive. It was clunky. So it was 90% consulting using the software. But it was the consulting work, yes. to tell you, for opportunities. It was that consulting work that showed me guys who were doing the wrong thing yep. and making messes, the disasters you could get into if you don't do the right checks and balances, and where good successes are coming from. So it gave me a good base, not ever thinking it would ever be my turn. Matek was acquired. Is that right? Yes and no. I don't have anything more to do with Metech or didn't shortly thereafter because Tony Poli, who was my accountant at the time, said, well, several years later, is let's go and do our own company. Let's do our own exploration company and get involved. In what period of time are we here? Probably late 80s, early 90s, okay. late 80s. Yeah. 90s. So you're still, you're in a consultant phase and this is the transition in a way. That's correct. So I was, so one of the consulting jobs I had done was for a company called Randwick. And it had some projects out east of Leonora, south of Granny Smith as well, one of the projects. And the guy didn't like the numbers I came up with. It was a listed company. And I said, look, uh, I can't, I wouldn't know how to make the numbers what you want, what you expect. They are what they are. If you don't like them, don't even bother paying me. And I forgot about it. I just thought, this guy's he's going to go nowhere. I don't know whether he was the was a butcher of Leonora. I think that might have been him. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Tony says, oh, let's do a company. You know of anything out there? And we had a look, and Randwick was a million dollars in debt and suspended from trading. So there were a couple of guys, Derek Cowlin, who was the managing director of Ross North Homes, and Ross North and his mates, another fellow, and they said, okay, we can get the company listed again and whatever. And I went to most of the creditors who were up in Leonora, and I went up there and I said, look, you know, we could give you 10 cents and a dollar. That's about it. Otherwise, you do all your dough. And we're going to try and start again, so we'll use your services. And they all accepted it. And even a few creditors down here accepted it. So... Tony and I joined forces, took on Randwick, paid out the debt, got a little money in the bank, and changed the name to Eagle Mining. Right. And we went from looking at those projects and wound up, because of our project south of Granny Smith, I bumped into Guy Lewington, who was Delta Gold. Delta was part of that. And he said, I want to leave Delta. I want to work for a little junior company. I only work a few days a week. I thought, Jeez. Anything he touched, he found. He's really, really, really good. How do I say no to this? I can't even afford myself. You're, yep, come on, guy. So next thing I know, I'm over. It was in original Hunter Resources that were a couple of guys older than me who wanted to get out of the business. And they had a lot of ground in the Yilgon, in the North Yilgon. Yes. And... They wanted to get out, but they didn't want to sell to a big company. They wanted their technical piece, somebody who would use their technical people. We had no really technical people other than myself. So we raised some money as an option to move in. We had to spend, I think, $2 million in the first few years, which we went to the market and raised that money. Then the next phase was five. And then all of a sudden we're, oh, and then we're having these 
bonfire. So they left two other companies were involved with this. So now we're majority. We got ourselves to majority. Now one company tries to take over us. We fought them, took over them, then took over the next one. So just pause there. If we go back, Hunter Resources was the start of this. And then that's correct. Okay. And, <laughs> and then we have other companies within the same area as Eagle. Well, no, they were by the deal somehow or another. I can't remember. They were connected to the deal. Right. So where all the argy bargy came about was Guy and I went up to this one project where we were led by their technical team not to waste our money. They had drilled it. And they said, you got to look down here elsewhere. Anyway, we were sitting, ha- having lunch and looking at the rocks and there's, there's a little flake of gold coming off right where we're sitting. And we looked at the structure of the rock and said, it's going this way. And the drilling was going in the same orientation. Obviously, it was hit and miss. So we got a drill rig, turned it around and never stopped. Before we knew it, we had three drill rigs going there. So now, Joseph Gutnick, this is an interesting story, how Hunter got this ground because it was all owned by Mark Creasy. Right. And Mark Creasy had to let half of his ground go under the mining law rules. And the Hunter guys picked it up. So here's a boundary line. Which was Joe Gutnick. Which Joe Gutnick now got that bit off Mark. So here's this boundary line. Joe Gutnick is drilling and drilling and drilling this massive resource out at about two gram, call it average two gram. We're drilling these things out, and we're four, six gram plus. And everybody said, you're lying. You're doing it wrong. Everybody knows there's nothing over two gram dirt in Western Australia. You're lying. So anyway, we're starting to make waves in the market. And the last two drill holes, we said, okay, the drill rigs go away. We'll analyze these. And these came up with like almost 100 meters of continuous mineralization running about six grams each two drill holes i thought the assay labs are somebody's playing tri- this is not this is playing <laughs> this can't, this be, can't true. be true <laughs> so i call up joe and i said joe can we borrow a rig so we suspended trading got his rig over drilled check holes with all kinds of people around making sure samples aren't contaminated yes. nothing and they said what you got is right and we never looked back. But it's interesting. Where Mark had dropped this ground, we have this high-grade dirt. And right on the other side, it's two-gram dirt. I don't know how it happens. I don't know how Mark did that. <laughs> but thank you very much, Mark. That worked out very well for us. <laughs> oh, goodness. That is a story. So Joe with Hunter continued to drill hoping at some point he was going to run into the six gram deposit but you, he, never he never did he, he just had did. mass he just had massive amounts of dirt and we had very select pods of dirt so it wound up that we were very very successful and you well, know, in no time at all we'd done our feasibility study we bought the old plutonic mill we were refurbishing it and so when we had first dirt being moved to start the mine to actually pouring first gold was something like nine months. So really short time. Very, very short time. And the mine produced at and above budgeted 
throughput. It was just the payback was barely a year, a month or two either side of a year. I've never seen anything before or since. Like It's just incredible. Through that time, Charlie, it's interesting you highlight this because that was called the Nimmery Goldmine. We called it Nimmery. Nimmery Goldmine. And so you through that period of time, you won both Explorer of the Year at the Great Diggers and Dealers Conference, and then you also won Developer of the Year at the same conference. That's right. (laughs) So (laughs) it was an amazing period of time. And that Nimmery is now Jundee. They combine the two and call it Jundee. Which is when Bill Beeman picked it up with Northern Star. Well, there was a long history about that. So we had one project, and we knew it had many years to go. We said, well, what can we counterbalance this with? And we looked around, and we saw Mount Lation. And that 60%, I think, of Mount Lation was owned by a decrepany company. Right. And we said, well, we'd like to buy that. And we were going to pay cash for it. There's a few years left or what, and we thought we could explore and open it up and do some more. Next thing I know, Decrepany's got a whole crew of people coming to visit us. So next thing I know, Decrepany is backing Joe, backing Goodneck, say, I'll give you this loan. Because Joe and I had an understanding from the earliest days. He said, if you ever want to sell, come and talk to me. I will not take you out. But Decrepany goes and says, here's this loan. I want you to expand. I want you to take out Charlie. I want you to take out Waluna Mines. So that was okay. So we had a hostile takeover. Tony and I were naive. We couldn't fight it. We collapsed. Went away with a little bit of money. That was okay. But I was happy to go away because I could see the signs that the gold price, hard to believe where the gold is today, was about five fifty, five sixty an ounce. And I thought, it's going to come off. But it wasn't very long after that that gold price collapsed down below $300 an ounce. And Joseph obviously couldn't pay back the Crepony. So he took the whole lot off Joe. And that was Normandy Mining. Well, that was Normandy Mining, took out Great Central and us. Well, Great Central had taken us and Waluna Mines, then took out the Greater Great Central, and then flogged it on to, I think it was Newmont who took it. And then they... I think that's where Bill got it, right. Northern Star. They might have got it off Newmont. So your period of time was through to about 97. That's about right. Yeah. 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 Got the history so, there, Charlie. So here we go back. So Bill gets, so you want to call it, the greater Jundee, and he's saying, where do we go? Now he's at the super pit. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Which... Yeah, back in 80, 81, I thought, why isn't this a big pit? (laughs) (laughs) Thinking alike. So what a fascinating period of time. So here we are, end of 97. You've had a hostile takeover. You're no longer part of Eagle Mining. 2000, you go on to another quite amazing period of time in your life as part of the mining fraternity and as a geologist as a technician and you co-founded Aquila Resources that's right again with Tony again with Tony Polly which this partnership is clearly a, quite a strong one over that period of time it sounds just an amazing partnership you both formed tell us a little bit about how this unfolded Aquila because we know at the end it was another hostile takeover it was an amazing story how did this one come about I guess resources are in my blood. 
and Tony thought this is pretty good. And we're both looking. We weren't working together at that point in time, but Tony called me up. He says, have you had a look at this You and Me project? I said, I'm looking at it right now. So it's very interesting. So we went together, pulled someone, bought You and Me, and then list. Then so we'd owned it privately, but then put it into Aquila Resources, Aquila Latin for eagle. So we're keeping the, the, eagle, the eagle theme going. <laughs> so we played around with You and Me for quite a while, and then got some gold projects over in South Australia. And then I said to Tony, you know, I said, it's not glamorous, but iron ore and then its sister, coking coal, is really good. It's like a no-brain. You don't have to have a whole lot of rocket science for it. It's many, many years. And you make a small margin over large production. We should have a look. Because at, your, this, at this yeah. point, you're a gold explorer. We were. Yeah. And it's funny how these things happen because our chief geologist at the time and Tony, myself, we're all having the same thoughts. And we said... Yeah, 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 this is great. So where are we going to go? So we started out in Queensland and said, here are these mines by these the big coal companies. And unlike gold, which is kind of potty from deposit to deposit, the coal runs for kilometers and kilometers and kilometers, and then they dip. We said, well, we'll go and get the down dip side, and if we have to have an underground mine, we'll have an underground mine. And we picked up all this land in Queensland, massive amounts of land. And then we went to the Pilbara, and I said, you know, I think the rogue kind of stuff, the not the direct ship, but the lower grade stuff, you don't get the price, but it's pretty easy to deal with. And so we picked up a lot of this ground. And for whatever reason, we partnered with a private company from the U.S. who had experience in coal, so we partnered with him. They wanted in on the iron ore, but we were 50-50, which was not good. Right. Not a good relationship. So we couldn't agree to move, to spend money. We, we got things going. Yes. But then when it really needed to be going, we couldn't do it. So by that time, we had Bao Steel, the largest Chinese government-owned steel producer, creeping up our register almost to, I think they got to close to 20%. Tony and I together and mates, we probably had about 35%. Everybody was frustrated. They blamed the lack of progress on Tony and I rather than these American American companies. And so another hostile takeover was launched after the GFC. By the way, our market cap had hit well over $3 billion pre-GFC, and then we fell away to nothing and then crawled back up, and I think it was $1.3 billion was the hostile takeover. Gee, so in the process of moving out of being a gold explorer you had some coal assets as well in, in africa that's right correct and, in and, mozambique in mozambique that's right and you had to then divest well you you chose to divest them through the course of it when you came back to focus on iron ore and and pay down debt or whatever you were going to do with it that's right we went to south africa for coal and iron ore and making good progress there and the mozambique for coal and we recognized that coal there was very difficult to put together to mine efficiently and to move it to port because it was so far inland and there were no real transportation corridors. So I don't know how much money we put in, maybe 15, 20 million, something, if that. Right. And we got knocked on the door by Riversdale and got about between cash and shares, whatever, 
maybe $50, $60 million, and we thought we'd killed a pig. <laughs> we thought, this is brilliant. So we turn around, and our coal was, according to our guys, Riversdale, our coal was like way better than what they were working on. Right. But next breath, it seems, Riversdale sold out to Rio for how much? Three billion? I think about a three, phenomenal amount a, of money. A huge amount of money <laughs> that Rio eventually <laughs> wrote off and said, Yeah, this is not gonna work. Three point nine or yeah. something like that. Yeah. So you were the original owners of the exploration tenements for the coal in Mozambique that went to we, Riversdale. No, no, no. Well they had they had their own okay. and we had ours. I guess we were the two biggest players in this area. Right. There's another part of that of your story there, Charlie. It's quite an amazing part. That coal theme in Queensland, though, you, you kept that and developed it? Well, yeah, we had a coal mine going and two others developing, starting to put portals down to another underground mine, getting another one opened up. One operating, two in development, and then uh, still a whole lot of other ground that was futures potential what we really wanted to do is get the iron ore going yes but from looking at what minres is doing now with hauling it to onslow yes that was our earliest thought that's not going to work we need 30 40 million ton a year and needs to be going north so we developed that size resources but the initial two three billion to build our own rail and port and all that turned out at the time looking like six plus billion but this is going to be huge too hard we're not going to get the money and that's when the takeover came but when we got this first takeover chris ellison who i knew came and knocked on our door and he said i want to put in a counter bid but i can't give you cash i'll give you cash and shares to a higher value than the three dollar cash bid i thought oh geez minres then we thought this is a real risk (laughs) <laughs> gosh <laughs> hindsight's a wonderful yes I was gonna <laughs> say. <laughs> oh you probably have a bit of a chuckle so we took the cash and ran <laughs> and that was yeah. and so that was really a hostile takeover as you say about 1.3 1.4 billion dollars in 2014 to Steel and asx listed horizon that's correct that sort of deal if you float that on top of eagle mining Gave you a few options in life, Charlie. It absolutely did. (laughs) (laughs) But I wasn't about to retire, by no means. Yeah. And when you look at that, what are we now in 2014 when that occurred? You, through this time, through the optionality that, you know, success brought you, you started your own foundation and you've done a couple of other things and it's probably a good move there. But just before I do... When you look at these two particular deals that you were a part of, what did you learn from them? When you think about it now, looking back. I suppose my real passion is the discovery and building and making mines. Yes. As opposed to how can I make the most money. Yes. And leave everybody else stranded. It's not about the money. It's about creating things. Yes. Building things. The foundation had started well before in a smaller scale. And as we were moving through and doing better and better with Aquila, I had been selling a few shares to feed the foundation. 
So the foundation was mainly education for disadvantaged children. Because between my time in northern Canada, even a little bit of time in southern Arizona, and certainly out here in North Queensland, and certainly WA, I realized that people who are out in the country in the bush, they do it really, really hard. And especially for the kids, whether they're sick kids or education, whatever. So we said that's going to be our focus. And it was for quite a long time. That must have been extremely gratifying to be able to give back. Well, it's, abs- it's I don't know, maybe it's cultural with me. I don't know what it is, but how can you not? Yeah. If you've been, people say, I'm lucky. And I said way back, actually at the launch of Nimri, people say, you're so lucky, you're so lucky. I said, well, I'm not lucky. I could go to the casino and lose all my money. I'm lucky in the people I get to meet. Yes. And they make my luck by what they might say or indicate or do or support me. So the give back, it's a no-brainer for us. And I guess it's a segue that that give back as well and the resources and the people doing tough. So one of the big things that we've done is with we've always been supporting Ronald McDonald House when they first opened up the Ronald McDonald Charities. And many, many years ago, and I'd asked, so the house is there for kids who are in the country and they need medical attention, serious medical attention. And the families come to Perth, and they, what do they do? They get an apartment or a hotel, and that's freaking expensive. Yeah. So the house is there to, to give them, as a family, a place to live while the kids are getting medical attention. So I'd asked maybe... 10 years, I suppose 10 years ago now, the then CEO, what the kids fear most. And I thought they were going to say dying or the operation or something like this. And the kids said, well, when we go back to school, we're going to be called dumb because we're not getting our schooling. And I said, well, why can't we, why can't the house put up a learning center and teach the kids? But it's not just the sick kids. It's their siblings that come with them that are also yanked out of their school. What do they do? So this whole program, we've got this whole program going at Ronald McDonald House and kids from all over are there and just loving it. So I'm very happy that we did that. And of course, a lot of the other, most of the other programs we were doing is around the indigenous mob, like with Wesley and their Mordich mob. I'd help get that going from the earliest days with a concept that the, the previous headmaster had many years ago. Yes. So, and uh, the Aboriginal troop at WAPA and Eon and Clontarf. And it's just, it's part of give back to those who, who need the help. But it's also now moving forward to Sari. I don't know if that's where you want to go. Yeah, yeah, but well, I will. Just, just to, I mean, thanks for sharing that because it's the part of your life that is extremely important to you, but it's come on the back of that successful and enjoyable and entrepreneurial mining career that you've endured over a long period of time. So for the listener, we're in 2016 and Charlie's alluded to the Centre for Entrepreneurial Research and Innovation. In short term, that is CERI, C-E-R-I. It's an organisation working with postgraduate researchers in fostering a startup culture it is about teaching the concept of entrepreneurialism. And my take on that 
Charlie, from what I could glean is that you really want to be able to provide for a future economy of Western Australia that doesn't necessarily involve mining. That's exactly right. Because as I said, when I first graduated university, the industry was a downturn. It was when I went up to Shibugamo. It was in a downturn. It went up, it went down. When we came out here, Kalgoorlie, no gold and no nickel because the industry went down. I just after Joe Gutnick did his hostile on us with the first eagle, poor gold price collapses, the industry collapses. So it's a boom bust. Yet Western Australia, more than most places, have not learned to have more than the one golden goose, the resources. Your local coffee shop, if it wasn't for resources, it wouldn't exist. Nobody would be here. The banks, the big bank, wouldn't be here. Per city wouldn't exist. So we need, while we can, while there's the golden goose, I think we need to build what I'll call the industries of the future. Whatever they may be, What there's a lot of really good medical biotech stuff happening here. It's a lot of good startups that have come through and still at SERI. So with our foundation, which was education for disadvantaged kids, I thought, well, this boom bust, where's education for the opposite end of the spectrum? Who's the most advantaged? Those that are the PhDs and postdocs and early to mid-stage career researchers. How can we help them? Help them change our global, WA, global future. What are we going to get into? Is it energy? Is, I don't know where it's going to come from. It's not going to be me, but I can help. Facilitate it. Yay. Give them the kind of, from the heart and the head, how to go and create things. So, Sari, you started about seven years ago, roughly. That's right. Yeah, and you've positioned it on Stirling Highway in Netherlands. And the building looks fantastic as you go past. And inside, you're, you're incubating for, for these businesses or opportunity sets of the future and allowing people that opportunity to work in an environment that encourages them to be able to develop their skill sets. Very much so, yeah. So our foundation pretty much probably funds 90% of SARI. And it's it, up until this last year, it might be 100 bucks that we ask from somebody. All, all the programs we offer are free. The startup offices are pretty much free. Basically, they pay an amount that might cover the coffee and Bickies and stuff that we put out there. So it's a minimal amount. We don't ask for anything back. We don't ask for any equity, nothing. Very generous, Charlie. Have you had some results over the seven years that you could highlight? There are a few. Our first two resident startups, one is called Terra 15, and they're two physicists. They're now they're on the terrace, and they employ 16 people. Their technology was based on fiber, not fiber optics, but that fiber, like in broadband fiber in the yes. ground, can be used as a sensor. It can feel minute vibrations. And they figured out how to measure what these vibrations are and to hear, listen, what these vibrations are. So whether it's for security or testing water links or whatever, or the low-hanging fruits, the resources industry. So say, for example, they string the fiber along a conveyor belt. They can hear a bearing in one roller going. 
And so rather than waiting a week for this guy to walk along and listen himself, this, uh, oh, you got a bearing going out here. So they're brilliant. At the same time they came in, this mature age researcher had figured out how to take stem cells from any healthy person and were using it. She worked at Royal Perth Hospital. So she'd do her magic with these stem cells, and she realized that, amongst other things, it seemed to be curing or at least stopping Crohn's disease or curing Crohn's disease. The next one, again, is called Lixa. So this is going to be a super success story. So the researcher found that bacteria have this biofilm. They're within a bomb shelter. So antibacterials, cleaning agents, or antibiotics have a tough time sometimes getting to this bacteria. She found some natural product that will destroy the biofilm and allow the bacteria to be attacked. Well, that's like a rocket ship this company takes off. Wow. You will hear about it. You will hear about it. This is really amazing stuff. We have another fellow who's moving out. He built, I don't think it's going to, it's a shame it won't be used maybe ever for humans. But he realized that when people are having heart operations and they need to have something take over from the heart, a heart pump, that the heart pump is the same pulse and the same rhythm constantly. It doesn't match what your heart was. And it doesn't matter whether you're an infant or somebody my size. It's the same. And that's not good. So he invented a heart pump that would reflect exactly what your heart was doing. You can change the pressure and you can change the pulse rate. Gosh, And he's having a tough, tough time making that go, but he's finally got some Singaporean backing. Right. Maybe something will happen, at least in an experimental stage. So Siri has been able to facilitate or incubate these stories and allow them to grow and prosper. And so, Charlie, if we look at Siri and how you envisaged starting, has it turned out as you'd expected? Well, I suppose we're now seven years, so we're not a startup, really. No. But as they always say, you know, an overnight sensation is 10 years in the making, so we're not there yet. Yes. I just... It doesn't matter the numbers that we get through. Some of the people coming through, the quality people, you can't get them all. But even if you change the life of a few people, it's worth doing. Because you don't know, you never know who your Evans and Sutherland or, you know, the offsprings of the other. I'm still trying to find our professors out here, our Evans and Sutherland here. So their offspring will be the silicon graphics and the adobes and and whatever of the world. Yeah. Yeah. 2018, you're still involved in mining. You decided to go back out and you founded Eagle Mountain Mining, which is listed on the ASX. Copper-focused exploration development company. How's that going? You're a managing director of that. That's right, along with the CEO, Tim Mason. This, funny how this all started, During that phase where AMAX brought me back to the U.S., not only was I dealing with Mount Newman, but they got me working down at their Twin Buttes joint venture, copper mine, big copper mine south of Tucson. So I had been asked by a friend to come and help with this private but public company in Canada. 
and to take over from a board that he had sacked because he was a major shareholder. I don't know what I did that for. <laughs> but anyway, this company had, as a private company, had a discovery, a nickel-copper discovery in Saskatchewan. Unfortunately, it was under a lake. You could only drill when there was a meter of blue ice, which some years you didn't have. Right. If you were lucky, you got maybe two or three months. And I said, we need to look for something else that is a counterbalance. When it's winter there, where can you go and deal with this? And through the network, I was led to this project in Arizona, this project called Silver Mountain, north of Phoenix. And I thought, this is pretty good. Had a deep dive. But by that time, again, the resource industry was like down. And this private company couldn't raise any money. So we liquidated the assets and paid out the shareholders. And that was that. Then I was asked to go and help out Geo-Pacific, which had projects in Fiji. I don't know what I did that for. I don't know what I was thinking at the time. I didn't know how to say no. <laughs> <laughs> and the same thing, but instead of freezing, it was just rain. And for many months of the year, you can't... So I, I went back to looking at this project in Arizona. And I started doing deals with people who had the ground. They were all private individuals stitching together the ground. And then, so I'm doing this on my own. So somebody comes along and says, I want you Pacific. I said, that's fine, take it. I'd, I didn't have any ownership of it at all. And I said, do you want this Arizona project? They said, no. I said, okay, I'll take it then. I'll pay you back what I spent from Geo Pacific money putting this together. Anyway, I wound up doing these two other deals, stitching this ground, patented claims together, and then spent a lot of my just flying airborne geophysics to the nth degree, ground geophysics, and staking all this other ground. It was a massive holding. In fact, one day we got a call just after we were listed. So I listed Eagle Mountain on the back of this project I call Silver Mountain. So shortly after being listed, I got a call from BHP saying, who are you? I said, why are you asking? They said, you've got a massive grant land holding here compared to Australia. It's still postage stamp there. Right. But relatively, there was only Rio and BHP in this area that had any decent land holdings. And they wanted to know who we were and what were there. So I found that rather interesting. Anyway, so we're looking at this project and raised some money on the ASX to start drilling this project, which we did. It was a kind of a complex project. And we had some success, but not outrageous. I said, well, hey, we're in Arizona, nice mining state, let's have a look around. And next thing I know, this asset pops up, Oracle Ridge, which we're dealing with now, and it had been mined back in the 90s and closed down. And then a Canadian company had bought it, a Canadian listed company bought it in about 2010, I think. You never, 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 never do as an exploration company, is borrow money, especially secured money. And this private equity company had no idea about mining, nothing, very successful one, put in $6.5 million U.S. in a secured note. And within six months, they couldn't pay the, put it into bankruptcy. Right. Because there was another downturn. Yes. The copper price had collapsed. This company couldn't raise any money. And this was now being put up for sale. And we had a look at it. We said, wow, OK. 
okay, maybe we can do something here. And I went over, met the guys, and we did a deal. It took about a week to do the deal. And we left them with 20%. We bought them out for shares when our shares were a dollar something a year, 18 months ago. So paid out, bought our 20% for that. And away we went. We're drilling and drilling and drilling. Our drilling has stopped. We're now into studies phase. And it's looking really, really interesting. Good. You're enjoying mining as much as you always have. Absolutely. It's just, <laughs> I don't know. I love it. I love the challenge. There's, there's no greater challenge. I think that's a great way to ask you in this point is what tips would you give to explorers? I don't know what the advice I would give is just get as much experience brought vertically and horizontally as you can. And don't be afraid to recognize if you see an opportunity, always keep your eyes out for opportunities and don't be afraid to give them a try. Yes. Because if you don't, somebody else will. Charlie, I look at your career and your history and it's been a fantastic insight you've provided. I would say that having come all the way from Pennsylvania to Florida to then go up to Canada, learn about your craft and then to come and apply it the way you have. There's quite a story over here in Western Australia and here you are now giving back in various ways and Siri, the way we've discussed it. I noticed you did a, an interview with the WA Defence and one of the quotes I pulled out of it, I thought it was quite apt. Part of the reason and this is for the listener, Charlie, part of the reason I guess I chose geology was that I didn't want to sit behind a desk. I didn't want to be told that's right or that's wrong. It's kind of why God gave geologists two hands, because if they looked at a rock, they could say on one hand it could be this, and on the other hand it could be that, and that's what I like, to kind of make my own shots. And I think with this in mind, you build a dedicated career to resources, geologists, mineral processing, mining in US, Canada, Australia building companies, taking risk and backing yourself in. And you've been extremely successful at that. The foundation of Siri to drive the future economy of WA has been a huge initiative. And my observation when I look at the way you've just described it is that you are clearly very passionate about it. I would like to say on behalf of all Western Australians, not that it's my role, but just because I've got an opportunity to say thanks for that, for being able to put your hard-earned behind that and the vision that could make a difference. And we all look forward to seeing that progress. So, Charlie, on behalf of Euros Hartley's Finding the Front, and from all our listeners, thanks so much for taking the time. I know you are generally a pretty private guy, so to come on here and, and give us your insights and have a time to chat was really, really special, and we'd really appreciate it. So thanks a lot. Thank you very much, Tim, for the opportunity. I really enjoyed it. Good on you, mate. We'll catch up soon. Take care. Thanks for listening to Euros Harley's Finding the Front. This podcast is for general information purposes only. Please check out eurosharleys.com for more information. Euros Harley's holds Australian Financial Services Licence 230052.